Alrighty, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I, declare, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And the second reading, as I mentioned before, uh, is from Exodus 17, um, from verse 1 to 7. From verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I supposed to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the, rock at, by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out, come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses, did this, uh, so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa. Evening, everyone. A couple of things before I start. Thank you very much, Debbie, for shutting that uh, thing so there's a little bit less glare. And th yeah, that's good. And um, thank you, James, who's about to turn those fans off while I uh, make a short announcement. Uh, I want to see who uh, reads their newsletters in the week. Oh, look, there's a lovely couple that have joined our church recently. Oh, Jake and Tara there. Does anyone want to say anything to Jake and Tara? You did read your newsletters. Uh, congratulations, dear brother and sister. They are um, going to increase our church number by one, uh, which is extraordinarily wonderful news. And uh, I will, if I can wrangle them at some point later on, you know, weeks to come, get them up for an interview. But uh, I want to just, 
on our behalf, pray for them and thank God for them first. So will you do that with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your servants, Jake and Tara. We thank you for their marriage and for their adding them to the number of our night church family. And we thank you that you're going to add number to their family. We pray that you would keep this little boy or girl growing well and healthy and developing. Uh, that he or she uh, would know the Lord uh, from the first breath they take, uh, that you would uh, give uh, tremendous strength and energy uh, and grace to Jake and Tara as they navigate this new phase of their life together. We commit them to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, thank you. I would like to congratulate you. Amen. And with that out of the way, you can now turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 95, which is the psalm we're looking at for tonight. And I just want to see if I got the power here to do stuff. The big one, no, I want to go backwards. Oh, oi, oi, oi. That is, yeah, that's my first slide, but it, I haven't got to that slide yet because it's the first slide, you see. <laughs> uh, I would suspect that most, if not all of us present, would be aware that for the last few weeks we've been helpfully looking a little bit inward, that is looking at ourselves as a church, who we are, what we are on about, how it is that the Word of God shapes our priorities. And of course, as you've heard earlier tonight and hopefully you saw last week, that culminated in our Vision Sunday, which was wonderful. Uh, and uh, on the lead up, we collectively uh, seen from the Word of God the importance of praying, uh, of serving, of giving, and I'm uh, absolutely astounded and, and thankful to God that our giving has uh, uh, increased almost to reach target, uh, which ultimately is about being committed to God's grace, how we live in God's grace and how we live out God's grace and what that means for our short to mid-term future. But there's a loose end that needs to be tied up. You see, we are not just Grace Church, we are Grace Anglican Church. And uh, we've not really talked about the whole Anglican thing. Now, at one level, that's kind of appropriate because your denominational affiliation is nowhere near as important as to whether or not the, the Word of God is what uh, determines your life and faith and uh, being Reformed and Evangelical is what matters, believing the Bible. But we are an Anglican church. What does the Anglican bit mean uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, our, our, us, as, us as people and being committed to grace? Well, the liturgy and theology of Anglicanism is expressed in this book that we don't use. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, we kind of do use it, but not regularly, uh, uh, not, not transparently most of the time. Uh, and the Book of Common Prayer, most of the liturgy uh, which expresses the theology that was written in there was written by this uh, really, really cool dude named Thomas Cranmer. And the basic, regular Anglican service is a service called morning prayer. And once upon a time, if you're a, a, a good Anglican, you lived in England in some village, you would get together to do church every day. And so this was the morning gathering. Uh, so I like to think I'll see you guys tomorrow morning for our morning gathering. Anyway, and every single time you gathered for morning prayer, you would read or have read aloud or take part in reading aloud Psalm 95. Of all 150 Psalms, Thomas Cranmer 
reckoned that the daily reading, the daily meaning of the people of God should include Psalm 95. You might say Psalm 95 is the Anglican Psalm. The obvious question I'm going to ask tonight is, why did Cranmer choose this Psalm for the daily reading of Anglican, six out of the seven days that they gather? Of course, that's what we're going to discover tonight as we look through it together. The Psalm begins... Uh, in a way that highlights the importance of knowing God as the all-powerful creator, knowing God as the all-powerful creator. Uh, there's no build-up to this psalm. A lot of the psalms, it tells you in verse zero, that's a real thing, right? Like there's, it says, a psalm of so-and-so, and here's the music, right? This one, I think of it starting the way that Star Wars begins, right? You know, the words come up on the screen and then just it goes from sort of black with all the stars to suddenly, like it hits you in the head, right? This is how this psalm starts. Psalm 95 verse 1, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It's pretty simple. It's big. It's loud. It's bold. It says... Yo, everyone, together, in a corporate way, it is right to joyfully and exuberantly and voluminously, with loudness, give praise and give thanks to God. Uh, the, 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 the shout aloud bit there and the extol him, it means the same thing. I know extol is not a word we use very often, but extol just means the same thing, shout aloud, right? Shout aloud and shout some more. In, in the song. The question we ask then is, well, why is it fitting to give loud and joyful praise and thanks to Yahweh, the true and living God? Well, the answer is simple. It's because he is the all-powerful creator. That's where the psalm goes next. Verse 3, for the Lord, Yahweh, is the great God, the great king above all gods, i.e. he's all-powerful. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. It's a cool bit of poetry going on here because it's really extensive. So the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain peaks, kind of like down is his, up is his. And wherever you are in the world, water and land are always a horizontal thing. So it's kind of like up and down and, and this way and that way, right? Wherever it is, God is the all-powerful creator of all things. Now, if you're a little bit like me, you might not immediately sort of be as enthusiastic as this psalm writer sounds. You might not sort of get the intensity straight away. Yes, God's your powerful creator, but that doesn't make me jump to my feet and shout like someone in a sports arena uh, might want to do. But then you think about it for a bit and you think, well, it is with song. Let us sing out to the Lord. And song can be sort of energising, okay. And then you think, well... What would the alternative be? And the alternative, when you consider that, I reckon makes you want to get really on board with this psalm. Here's the alternative. The, the alternative to jubilantly praising God in song is not giving him his due as creator. And the Bible talks about that really as a fundamental characteristic of our sin. Here's how it is elsewhere in the Bible from Romans chapter 1. For well, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, i.e. you'd be a dummy to look at the world and go, there isn't 
an all-powerful creator who made this thing. Of course, there's, it's just obvious there's a God who's made this world. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, people know this is true. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. When I see the unfittingness of not giving God his due, when I see the obvious, frankly, stupidity and immorality of living as if God isn't there, well then, yeah, I kind of then see the rightness of shouting with praise that, yes, God is the great God, the King above all gods. And I will shout that in the hope that, frankly, other people hear it and are encouraged to agree. I want to be the Psalm 95 kind of person, not the Romans 1 kind of person. And my resolve gets further strengthened when I remember that praising God, and this is something we always forget, by the way, praising God is really praising Him to others. We often forget about this. You see, God doesn't need me to tell Him that He's the all-powerful Creator. He already knows that the mountain peaks and the depths of the earth are all His, for He made them. He doesn't go, oh, well, Ben praised me and said, God, you're so good, you created everything. God goes, oh, that's right, I did, I forgot, you know. Well, thanks, Ben, for telling me that, right? Of course not. What's the point of doing this? Well, it's corporate. Come, let us shout, let us sing. When we praise God, it is actually for the benefit, ultimately, of others. It's why it always baffles me that some people get this impression that when it comes time to sort of praising God, especially in song, that the rest of the world disappears and it's just me and God there and I'm praising him. So it looks a bit confused, right? It, it sort of should be. One of the reasons you guys are sitting in a curve like this is very deliberate. It's so that when we do sing and when we do praise God, you have a sense of the one anotherness that we are encouraging one another towards that, which I think this psalm is doing. Now, by itself, the exuberant, joyful praise of God, wonderful and important and right as it is, by itself, it is unbalanced. It's actually meaningless without what comes next. To be the people of God, it is necessary to ascribe Him glory and honour and, and power as the Creator and to give thanks to Him, but it is not sufficient just to do that. We need to not only know Him as the Creator... But if we are to be his people, we need to also know him as the rescuer, the redeemer. And that's where the psalm moves next. Verse 6. Come, continues the writer, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Just like in verse 1. He is the rock of our salvation. For the Israelites who sung this psalm, God isn't just the creator, even though he certainly is that. He's not just the great God, even though he is. He's also our shepherd. We are the people of his pasture. There's ownership. It's not just the God, it's that he's my God. Though all the nations of the earth are his, he had redeemed the Israelites in particular out of Egypt. There is a big difference and a very important difference in knowing about God and knowing the truth about God to actually knowing God. See, one of them is intellectual, 
which is vital, but the other is personal. There's a big problem that, that plagues uh, sort of Christianity within our, our culture, which you have a lot of people who know a lot about God, but they're a bit not quite there with knowing him as my God, with my personal Lord. Uh, also note again the balance of the approach that comes here. There's the exuberant noise, the joyful shouting, amen, hallelujah. But now there's the kneeling, the bowing, the worship. Uh, I think that's a lot more solemn, a lot more quiet. As much of this and volume is good, also as much it needs to be as sort of balanced with the, the whole kneeling thing. Now I know we don't do the whole kneeling thing here, I mean we... We did once and people whinged about it, but we got those up. Once upon a time, you know, good Anglican church, right? Has anyone, anyone seen this before? You've got the pews, right? And there's that thing that kneels out down the bottom and you can, you know, do your thing. Yeah, yeah. If we get a new building one day, that, that will put that in the plan. <laughs> anyone got a spare 10 million? We can get that building. That'll be a little bit extra for the kneeling rail. Okay. Here's where we're at, people. Even... If you recognise the rightness of ascribing God glory, honour and power on account of the fact that he's the creator, even if you get that, and even if you also recognise the rightness in kneeling, humbly, solemnly, in the acknowledgement that God is the redeemer, the personal saviour, even then, with those two big poles in place, it is still possible to only pay him lip service. And so the final essential element of this psalm is that you actually are also to cherish and obey his word if you are to be his people. You cannot love God without love, but not loving his word. As a matter of fact, that's a contradictory statement. You cannot love God without loving and cherishing his word. Hence the solemn and frankly kind of jarring ending to this psalm. Uh, from verse 7, David writes, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness when your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And that's the end of the psalm. Wow, it's a bit of a punch at the end, isn't it? Now, what's this Massa and Meribah thing? Oh, there it is. Oh. I'm missing lots of slides. Oh, well, uh, you have your Bibles open at um, Psalm 95. What's the Massa and Meribah thing? Well, that's the reason that I actually had the second reading from Exodus chapter 17. There's this little incident that happens in the history of Israel where you've got the people in the desert, they grumble, they don't trust in God even though he's given them this amazing rescue. They say, God, you've taken us out in the desert to die basically, whereas God's just legit testing them to see whether they're actually going to trust and rely on him. And uh, you'd expect that given they're about ready to stone God's chosen leader Moses, that God will just go <laughs> stuff the lot of you, I'll take Moses and start again and you guys can all die of thirst. But God is very gracious and loving. He says, no, Moses, go get the staff, the one that you used to strike the Nile. And remember, when he struck the Nile, blood came. So maybe there's going to be some sort of blood thing going on. And he says, there's a big rock at Horeb. I'm going to come and stand before the rock 
and you, Moses, strike the rock. Which makes you wonder, is it kind of like he's striking God? And, and, and through that process, the life-giving water comes out. And so you've got this wonderful and also horrible little incident where God teaches them about the gospel, but it, they name the place Massa and Meribah because of the way that... Oh, look, the slide came. Thanks. Uh, because of the way that uh, they tested God. Now, that's one incident. However, there are times when one specific incident actually is used to refer to a whole pattern of things. Now, we're used to this. If I say to you guys, 9-11, you know you think it's like the planes hitting the Twin Tower. Well, I hope you guys think that. Some of you are very young. But if I say 9-11, that's what you think, right? But it's also used to refer to this sort of much broader issue of, of sort of the conflict between Western ideals and Islamic jihadism, like 9-11 is kind of like the flashpoint. Now, Massa and Meribah kind of equal that whole period, the 40 years of Israel not trusting in the Word of God, so that eventually he said, you know what, this whole generation, they will not enter into the Promised Land. They will not enter into my rest. And that's kind of like the, the warning at the end of the psalm, uh, which ought to bring you to the point where you go, okay, well, I, I can see the whole summary now. To be the people of God, exuberant, joyful praise, for He's the all-powerful Creator. Solemn worship, because He's the personal Redeemer. And with those two things in place, for goodness sake, love and cherish His Word. Don't forget it. Amen. That's the end. And that's what Cranmer, at the very least, would have envisioned for the Church of England. I've got no doubt whatsoever that whatever else Anglicanism might involve, the reason he wanted us to see this every day is that to be truly Anglican is to know God as Creator and Redeemer and to take His Gospel Word to heart. That's, I mean, there's more than that, but there's definitely not less than that, right? To be truly Anglican is to know God as Creator and Redeemer and to take His Gospel Word to heart. But there's something more, and there's something strange about this psalm. David implies that if you fail to listen to God today, then you're at risk of not entering his rest. But that seems a bit ridiculous because I hope you know enough of your Bible history to know that by the time David wrote this psalm, Israel had long since entered that promised land. It had been generations between that first lot who died out and the second lot who came into the promised land and by the time David's writing the psalm. And yet David's saying, today, if you hear his voice, make sure you listen so that you don't miss out on entering his rest. It can only be the case that in David's mind, there's some other rest, something that's not the promised land. There's some other thing that he's referring to, and of course, in the New Testament, we learn that that's definitely the case. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, I kid you not, spends about one and a half chapters explaining this part of Psalm 95. There's one and a half chapters on Hebrews just explaining the second half of Psalm 95. I'm going to take you through it at super quick speed, because we're not doing a whole exegetical sermon on, on Hebrews uh, 3 and 4, but it'll be enough for you to sort of get what's going on in David's mind and, more importantly, what's going on in God's mind. Here we go. First point in the way Hebrews approaches Psalm 95 is that the psalm applies to God's church today. 
That's us right here, right now. Just like David applied it to Israel in his day, it applies just the same automatically to the church. Here's what we read, Hebrews 3, verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, note the present tense, as the Holy Spirit says today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The writer tells us the application of this from uh, verse 12 in the same chapter, which says, and I'll put it on the screen, see to it, therefore, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Translation, today, if you hear God's word, help one another Make sure that you take it to heart and obey it. Don't be like those Israelites who failed and their bodies were left in the desert. Don't be like that. Let's let's help one another obey the Word of God today. But that's still not adequate because what are we sort of going towards? Is it the promised land of Israel, right? Are we going to enter God's rest? Are we all going to get plane tickets to Israel tomorrow? Gee, I hope not at the moment. That wouldn't be very good, would it? What's he talking about? Well, the promise of entering God's rest still stands so he must be talking about something hebrews 4 verse 1 therefore since the promise of entry his rest still stands let us be careful that none of you have found to be fallen short of it so what is it well here's the answer the rest that the church is heading towards is something beyond creation and i know that to be the case because of what the bible says hebrews 4 verse 4 for somewhere Genesis 1, he has spoken about the seventh day, the rest, in these words, quote, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And then just a bit further down, uh, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following there, the ancient Israelites, example of disobedience. It's pretty clever. When God creates the world, right? Genesis 1 and 2, he then goes about forming it and he he does that for six days and then on the seventh day, he looks at all that he's done, he goes, it's very good, I'm going to rest. And every day that he's done the forming of creation, there's an evening and a morning. But on the seventh day, We're not in creation realm anymore, we're sort of sitting back resting and there's no evening, morning, there's something beyond creation, there's something beyond this world and it's where God sort of is, if I can put it like that, in in, in rest territory. And the, the writers of the Hebrews and David, which is really done with the oversight of God, God is saying to his church, yo, Keep making sure you listen and obey God's word. Keep helping one another to do that so none of you fall short of entering that heavenly, out-of-this-creation type rest. And so I actually need to make an addition to my main point. I said before, uh, to be truly Anglican is to know God as creator and redeemer and to take his gospel word to heart. But I think we need to add to that and to help one another do this today there's psalm 95 for us and that gives me uh two very simple but significant implications the first one is 
Uh, perhaps you are at dire risk of failing to enter God's rest full stop because you neither recognise God as creator or as your redeemer or see the value in taking his word to heart. It might be that you don't get yet give thanks and honour to God in recognition of the fact that he has created you. You don't recognise that he actually has a right claim over your life and as a matter of fact, every breath you are breathing right now is a gift of him to you. Uh, if that's you, for goodness sake, repent, stop choosing to not be ruled by God the Creator. Uh, it's a dreadfully immoral thing to do. Perhaps you can join in with joyful songs and thanksgiving, but you feel uncomfortable speaking about a personal relationship with God. But he's the same God who offers redemption. He offers forgiveness. He wants to be your God. As a matter of fact, that grumbling and whinging that the Israelites did, all of us, frankly, have the same sinful nature and God's gone, you know what, I'm going to come down in the person of Jesus and I will be struck as Jesus died on the cross, it was God being struck, so that instead of getting the death that you deserve, you can have what you need, not only for life in this creation, but life for the beyond. You can have eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his life that you could be one of God's redeemed people. Uh, therefore, it remains for you, if you've not done so already, to bend the knee, to bow in worship, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your Lord and Saviour so that you can be one of God's redeemed people. Uh, if you've been thinking about become a becoming a follower of Jesus, you've heard the gospel here, hopefully, or from some friend or whatever, you've been thinking about actually becoming a follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you there's a really, really good day that you can choose to do that. Does anyone know which day it is a good day to choose to become a follower of Jesus? Today. Yes, that's right. Uh, now, when people advertise things, they only tell you the good stuff. I'm an honest uh, pitch giver, so I'm going to tell you the bad stuff. There's something very bad about becoming a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, by my reckoning, it could well qualify as the number one worst thing about choosing to turn and put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. The worst thing about following Jesus is not the fact that you might find yourself at odds with the values of this world, that you might be ridiculed by other people, that your life might need to be given up, well it does need to be given up in order to have his priorities, none of that's the worst thing. The worst thing is that Jesus himself says that few people will be on that road to the Sabbath rest. Narrow is the gate, difficult the road that leads to salvation and few people find it. Broad is the gate, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many people travel. And I can tell you from personal experience, I think the worst thing about being a follower of Jesus is knowing that there will continue to be people, loved ones, who stubbornly resist the truth and who refuse to turn and repent. That's the worst thing. But you... Enter by the narrow gate, won't you? Make that choice and make, it, make, make that real thing. Uh, for the majority of us, I suspect, the other implication from this psalm, and this is again why probably Cranmer thought we should hear it every day, is that 
it really helps us to get church right, to understand what we're doing as we gather and, and, and why it's a big thing. See, all throughout the psalm, it's corporate. Come, let us sing out to the Lord, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And then when it's picked up in, here, in Hebrews, right? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you be found to have it. Encourage one another all the more, right? Encourage so that we, none of us is going to be found short of entering that rest, right? God's prescribed means of keeping us on the right path is actually gathering together under the Word of God. What we're doing now is kind of, with God's big stamp of approval, He says, yes, you do this, keep doing this, and that, 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 that keeps you on this narrow path, right? Um, it's really one of the big reasons for church is to help one another remain faithful to the word of our all-powerful creator and redeemer, lest we fail to enter his eternal rest. You ever wonder why we have a sermon at church? You should wonder that because isn't the, the, the Bible the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit? Should we just have the Bible reading? That's the high point of our gathering. Why do we have a sermon? Well, the Bible is the word of God and we want to make sure everyone holds on to it. And that means you've got to get some guy up here to explain it so that everyone's kind of on the same page and saying, yes, yes, this is the word, and this is how we're going to respond to it, this is how we're going to understand it and apply it in our lives. Mature Christians, and you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating, mature Christians decide to come to church once. Now, you can mishear that and think you're a mature Christian, you'll gather with the people of God on one occasion. No, 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 no. They decide once. That is, when Sunday rolls around, a mature Christian doesn't sit there and go, hmm, will I or won't I meet with the people of God to encourage them and be encouraged by His Word? There's no choice. I've already made that decision. I, I made that decision a long time ago. When church is going to gather, that's where I'll be. I don't remake the decision every week. I don't weigh that up every Sunday. I make the choice once and here I am. Now, obviously, sickness, holidays, extenuating circumstances, oh, I'm not, be a legalist, right? If you don't come to church, you're going to hell, right? No, 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 no. no it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm framing this only in the positive, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll go, gee, I love being on this road. Gee, I'm looking forward to that Sabbath rest. Gee, I really appreciate that God says this is a way to kind of make sure that you keep there and I can help others to make sure they're there. Hey, brothers and sisters, let's get together. Let's help one another sing out and uh, give joyful, exuberant thanks to the Lord and honour Him as our Redeemer, right? It's a big cultural problem in the church that you've got a lot of people that let, let things get in the way like stupid things. We've got shift work and you can choose when to have your shifts and not to have your shift. Why on earth would you put one on a Sunday night? Or sometimes older people, they go to the kids, the kids are really into sport and the sport, the team or whatever it is, is going to be on a Sunday morning. Why would you even need to consider that? You would just go, well, no. I mean, I don't want to teach my kid that their Sunday sport or their commitment to this sport thing is sort of just roughly on the same level as, you know, like heading towards an eternity with God's rest or something like that. It's stupid. No matter what I say, they're going to learn that lesson, right? For goodness sake, commit to grace, commit to grace and Church and do it 
once. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us, to make us your very own people. And therefore, Heavenly Father, we uh, delight to joyfully give thanks and praise, to shout to you in song, and also to worship you, uh, you and kneel before you as our uh, Redeemer. Heavenly Father, may none of us be found to have uh, an unbelieving and sinful heart, May none of us be found to be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Help all of us to help one another stay firm uh, in cherishing and obeying your word that we may continue on the path uh, towards that wonderful rest that awaits us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.